Welcome to Coming Home Well. I'm your host, Tyler Piron. And today, in continuing with our history lesson, we have Dr. William Thiessen. He's the uh, Atlantic Area Historian with the United States Coast Guard. And we are going to talk about something that is a footnote in history, but is really quite an amazing insight. We're going to talk about Lieutenant James, also known as Jimmy Crotty. And he was the only Coast Guardsman involved in the fight on the Philippines. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. So how in the world did a Coast Guardsman get involved with the fight in the Philippines during World War II? So uh, if you really drill down, we're all trying to figure that one out still. Uh, We've looked at all the personnel records and papers and things like that. And uh, we know that uh, Lieutenant Crotty was uh, a part of the first uh, explosives and demolition school and mine warfare school in uh, Washington, D.C. And, and Yorktown, Virginia, uh, along with another Coast Guardsman. But it's typically a Navy school. Um, however, for some reason or another, they brought in uh, a couple of Coast Guard officers to train as well. And once they were complete, once they had completed that training, they became some of the world's experts in uh, naval demolitions, explosives and ordnance. And as a result, they were in high demand because uh, I think most military leaders knew that the that the war by then it was still before the war had uh, U.S. entry into World War II. They knew that there was going to be high demand for people with that specialty. Lieutenant Crotty was sort of like a special forces SEAL type doing uh, mines and explosives in the water. Yeah, well, today, uh, for your listeners who may have some knowledge of EOD operations, uh, those those types of personnel are are somewhat trained in uh, SEAL and Special Forces uh, activities and and uh, drills and things of that nature. Uh, not not to the total level of a SEAL. That's that's uh, much higher. But um, back in the day in World War II, EOD was still fledgling specialty. And even though these officers were highly trained in the use of explosives and demolition and that sort of thing, they probably didn't receive the same special forces training that uh, uh, that you might get today in uh, in uh, the SEAL side. And in fact, the SEALs were still in their infancy in World War II, for that matter, as well. So it was kind of a different uh, different day and time. However, I will say, and I, I don't want to foreshadow too much. But uh, Lieutenant Crotty did undertake a lot of what might be termed special forces operations by today's definition. So let's talk about that, because, I mean, he was doing some crazy stuff like, you know, stuff nowadays. We're like, how is he doing that? Where what? How did he get there? Because he was involved in all sorts of things. What are some of the things that he was involved in? So, you know, um, Lieutenant Crotty, uh, I just want to preface this by saying that he was one of the most versatile, and uh, today we call them joint operations personnel uh, that you might have found in the Coast Guard in World War II. 
his background was primarily he was an academy graduate and uh, he was probably one of the finest athletes to ever graduate from the Coast Guard Academy. Uh, before he entered the academy, he was a, uh, a national champion baseball player and he led sports teams at the academy. So he's a very uh, athletic fit and uh, um, tactical kind of person. Um, and then you layer on top of that all of the training that he received, not only at the academy, but in six or seven years of service in the Coast Guard on board cutters and then all of his explosives training. Well, here you have somebody who's highly qualified to do a number of missions. So when he finished up his training uh, in the fall of 1941, prior to December 7th, um, he was shipped out to the Philippines. And at that point, I think a lot of uh, military leaders knew that an attack was imminent. They just didn't understand or comprehend what exactly that might take place. But in any case, um, he started out, uh, Karate did as, as he was trained to be an explosives and demolitions expert. Um, and at that point, uh, you may not be aware, but Manila Bay was guarded by the largest minefield in the world. And there was, there were two, two minefields, one run by the Navy and the other run by the army. Um, and so, uh, part of his training was uh, mine warfare. And so he was sent there in, in large part because of the huge, very large minefields that were guarding Manila Bay against enemy attack. So that was his initial um, mission was to work the minefields there. Now I can go into the other missions he did after that, if you like. Absolutely. I mean, because he is like a modern day Renaissance warfare he got into like everything. And that's what makes his story so amazing is that you think, oh, Coast Guard, you know, they rescue people. You know, I've got this image of the Coast Guard and I know many Coast Guardsmen and, and very wonderful service. But I do not think of them as warfare out in the Philippines being, you know, John Q. Rambo like Lieutenant Crotty was. Well, let's, let's just digress quickly here because, as you're probably aware, the Coast Guard was founded as a law enforcement uh, agency by Alexander Hamilton in 1790. And its primary mission has always been law enforcement ever since, as you see in all of the news stories associated with interdiction of various kinds. However, Coast Guard has also been involved in every major conflict in U.S. history since 1790. Uh, perhaps one or two land battles that it wasn't involved in, like the Indian Wars. Obviously, there's no Coast Guard connection to that. But virtually every other worldwide uh, conflict in U.S. history, the Coast Guard many times has been tip of the spear in those operations, even in modern warfare. Getting back to the uh, Coast Guard's role there and, uh, and karate. So he was sent there in October, which is uh, two months before the Japanese attack. And uh, if you know much about the defense of the Philippines in 1941-42, uh, the Japanese, after they attacked, sent troops on shore, and they gradually pretty much put a stranglehold on the Manila Bay area, which is where most of the U.S. forces were uh, concentrated at the time. And the ones that weren't fell back behind defensive lines on the Bataan Peninsula in Manila and on the island, the fortified island of Corregidor. For your listeners who have no idea what Corregidor was, it was the uh, Asian equivalent of Gibraltar in uh, in the South Pacific or in the Pacific Western Pacific. 
It was not only highly fortified over decades of occupation by Spanish, Filipino, and uh, U.S. forces. It also was hollowed out. It was essentially a um, huge command center within a, a rock. So uh, uh, thousands of people could actually be, military people could be on that island at any time. So as the Japanese forces encircled all the uh, Americans and Filipinos that were there, the first to go was the Bataan Peninsula. That was actually an army area of responsibility. And so the famous Bataan Death March started there in early April when American forces surrendered on Bataan. However, that was not all American forces. That was primarily Army. And that's the, uh, the march started there and wound up at the uh, prison camps. But uh, the Navy and the Marines and a few uh, leftover Army and Filipino defenders, they uh, continued to, uh, to defend the island Corregidor for another month. So there was a second surrender that took place in early May. And the reason I point out all this and go into depth is that as the, uh, the uh, theater of operations changed over time because these uh, area was shrinking and shrinking. The missions taken on by, by Karate and uh, hundreds of others changed. They became joint operational uh, personnel where, for example, you had Karate serving not only as a minesweeping expert, he was also blowing up uh, strategic uh, American uh, bases and installations so they wouldn't fall into enemy hands. And then he also served as the executive officer on a U.S. Navy minesweeper that was defending the uh, Manila Bay. Uh, later on, he volunteered as a member of what was called the Naval Battalion. And what that is was an assembly of about 500 uh, Americans, including pilots who no longer had aircraft, uh, Navy personnel that no longer had ships uh, or, or submariners that no longer had submarines, um, as well as Marines. There was a, a hodgepodge of different services. Well, he became an officer in the Naval Battalion, which helped to defend Bataan before Bataan fell to the Japanese. And then later he evacuated to Corregidor because he was uh, Naval personnel, not Army. Army remained behind on the peninsula. And then if you want me to continue further, he also, he also, so here he was, he was a Coastie. He was also a Naval officer. He was an officer in the Navy Battalion, which was basically uh, Naval troops and infantry. But then he, when he evacuated to Corregidor to help defend, do the last defense of Corregidor, he became uh, adjutant to the military command there and also a member of the 4th Marine Regiment. Uh, so he was in command of an artillery uh, emplacement on on the on top of the rock that defended the command center there as a part of the 4th Marine Regiment. So he basically served in three or four different uh, military services in just a span of four or five months. And what's amazing is that he pretty much served in every single capacity that we have as a military service, less the Air Force, because the Air Force didn't even exist at the time. They were part of the Army. So at the time, he could legitimately say he served in the Marines, the Navy, the Coast Guard, and the Army. That's, That's crazy. Yeah. So um, he was involved in all these things. Obviously, he didn't fly. So that was the only thing he didn't do. Right. So how long was he there, and, and why is he of such distinction that we talk about him today? Well, let me just point out that so many Coast Guard people enlist or um, 
joined the Coast Guard for one reason. The uh, primary reason is to serve a larger purpose and to uh, many Coasties that join. Uh, to me, it's been a great honor just to be a civil servant in the service because uh, so many of these people, it's a very small service, so it has to be selected. And so many of these people join because they want to put others before themselves. And uh, Thomas, uh, Lieutenant Thomas James Eugene Karate was one of those people uh, who always did uh, uh, lead by allowing others to shine and to put others before himself. He's probably one of the most honored and distinguished uh, Coast Guardsmen of World War II. The most, probably the most honored was our medal, one and only Medal of Honor recipient, Douglas Monroe from Guadalcanal. But uh, if you look at what uh, Karate did, and all of the honors that he received, uh, it, it really stacks up to be uh, a, quite a uh, honorable record. He's the only, as far as I know, he's the only American in U.S. history to have been, uh, to have earned a battle streamer uh, single-handedly. There's no other person in military history, in American military history, that actually received a battle streamer on his own. Uh, and that's sort of the reason that we're talking about him, because he was the Coast Guardsman. That was the only one that was involved. And so the Coast Guard has a battle streamer as a result. That's correct. But he also, as you're well aware, we just mentioned, served in so many of these other units that he basically earned the uh, unit citations for all the units he served in. So, for example, a presidential unit citation for the 4th Marine Regiment or the Asiatic uh, Defense uh, Campaign Ribbon. He got the Bronze Star, got the Purple Heart, obviously. He was uh, POW, so he got the POW medal. So, I mean, if, if he had survived and he'd worn the medals on his, on his chest from all these different uh, activities, probably would have weighed down his chest from the weight of all the medals that he had earned. But um, it's just an example of Semper Paratus, the, uh, the motto of the Coast Guard, is to always be ready. And uh, he was. He was able to serve... Uh, a distinguished career and uh, almost all the operations and activities he served with distinction as well. So he was the only one from the Coast Guard to be deployed to the Philippines. There was no other Coast Guard uh, men there at all. He was the one and only. And it's really interesting. If you look at some of the records, very few survived because uh, the Japanese destroyed so many records and so many were actually destroyed by the Americans and the allies before uh, they surrendered. But there is one that was uh, preserved from the POW camp that he was in Kabanatuan. And it was hand-drawn by some of the uh, officers in, that were incarcerated there. And uh, it goes down and it lists the name, <clears throat> the branch of service, and some other particulars about each officer that was a POW at Kabanatuan. And there, there he is, sticks out, Coast Guard 1, Lieutenant Name karate. <laughs> you look at all the rest of the services and are well represented, but there's just one for the Coast Guard, and that's uh, Lieutenant Karate. So how did he end up getting captured? So I mentioned that there were there were literally two surrenders um, at the uh, Battle of Manila Bay, uh, or not the Battle of Manila Bay, but at the uh, defense of the Philippines in uh, 1941-42. And, and, and the Bataan Peninsula surrendered in early April. Um, and then uh, Corregidor surrendered after a month of holding out in early May. So that, that was not a part of the Bataan Death March. What happened was the uh, Marines, Navy, Filipinos uh, that were uh, uh, defending Corregidor 
uh, after an overwhelming force of Japanese landed on that small island and they could no longer hold out. Uh, they surrendered, the uh, commanding general uh, surrendered to Japanese forces. And then the uh, all of the Allied personnel on the island were um, evacuated by by boats and uh, landing craft to the city of Manila, which is where they boarded uh, basically cattle cars on trains bound for uh, northern Luzon, which is where Cabana Tuan Prison is located. And he was in camp number one of that uh, prison complex. Um, and I, I have to stress that many people that boarded those, those cattle cars never emerged alive because there were so many that had endured uh, malnutrition and starvation holding out against the Japanese. There were many that were wounded, uh, mortally wounded, that boarded those trains. And, uh, and so uh, when the prisoners emerged up in Kabana, Tuan, uh, many had not survived that, that train ride. It was absolutely a brutal event, and Lieutenant Karate passed away while he was a PW, right? That's correct. One of the, uh, the issues with uh, internment in Japanese prison camps is that a lot of times the, uh, the POWs did not receive proper nutrition. Uh, Health care was sparse, if any. Uh, medications were just not provided. Um, and so as a result, um, when disease or, or um, sickness spread through the prison camps, a lot of times it would just take out waves of POWs because there just wasn't proper medical care or uh, medications. And he arrived at the prison camp in June. And uh, within a month, by July, records indicate that he had contracted diphtheria, which was one of the big killers of the POWs in that camp. And uh, in spite of the fact that he was a great athlete and always in great condition, I mean, even when he was in the prison camp, they were talking about the World Series and, and things of that nature. He was always engaged and always a great morale booster and leader. But when he caught diphtheria, he just didn't have the resistance or the reserves to fight it. And uh, records seem to indicate he died within just a few days of contracting the disease in mid-July. And these prison camps, it's hard to even describe how horrific they were. These are not like the modern day you know, prisons that we, we think of. They weren't even really like uh, Stalag 13 of Hogan's Heroes. These were masses of humanity with very little shelter, very little food, almost no health care, and just people massed in together and treated quite brutally. Correct. I think if, if you look at the, uh, compare the treatment of prisoners um, in World War II between uh, those that were in Japanese-controlled uh, prison camps versus those that were in uh, European in the European theater of operations and where POWs there, you find there's a marked difference between survival rates. And uh, when, when Lieutenant Crotty uh, passed, um, he was actually uh, buried in mass grave alongside uh, many others that had died just that same day. Um, they actually had uh, a detail of POWs that would take uh, the bodies of these uh, uh, deceased and uh, bury them in mass graves just outside the prison gates and the prison walls. And uh, that's one reason why trying to identify uh, missing in action from that, that prison is so difficult because of uh, lack of records, 
and trying to identify the remains of hundreds of, of POWs that, that died and were buried side by side outside the, the prison walls. Was Lieutenant Crotty's body ever identified? I know that there's been lots and lots of efforts by the POWMIA uh, organization that the military has that goes and, and does all the research to find all the people missing from the various conflicts to bring them home. That's a really good question. The, um, the POWs themselves tried their best to maintain records of where these individuals were buried despite the fact that uh, they had very little resources at their disposal uh, to do so. So um, the bodies were, like I mentioned before, buried mass graves outside of the prison walls. And then what made it harder is that after um, the war had concluded, those remains were all gathered up and uh, reinterred at the Nash at the uh, military cemetery in Manila. And so there was a lot of opportunities to lose track of who is who and where, where they were buried. However, um, just recently, in the last few years, the uh, uh, POW MIA group out of uh, Hawaii that identifies remains of missing in action was able to disinter uh, the, uh, the particular um, burial site in Manila where uh, Karate was uh, located. And even though there were several other uh, sets of remains in that same grave, they were able to find uh, his remains and do a DNA match with members of the family, uh, the Karate family in Buffalo. Isn't that quite amazing? Because, you know, you think, okay, mass grave, you're never going to find them. And then they're moved to try to provide honors because back then they had no idea about DNA. They said, well, we're going to provide them a proper burial. And then years and years, decades later, they said, oh, yeah, we can perfectly identify this was who and this was where they are now. And let's give them another proper burial with their family. That is that is quite amazing that, you know, you think that a mass grave and that's it. Yeah. So the uh, the remains were identified in Hawaii and uh, they were returned with honors to the United States late last year, late in 2019. And uh, given a uh, military honors, military burial in uh, Buffalo um, within the uh, family plot, uh, they're the Karate family. And uh, also uh, parts of it, uh, some of his remains will also be interred at the, um, at the uh, U.S. Coast Guard Academy as well in a later ceremony once we get through the virus. So I'm sure that the Coast Guard was uh, fully represented uh, at the uh, family burial especially since he is uh, such a high point or a remarkable Coast Guardsman uh, with his own battle streamer. How does the United States Coast Guard honor Lieutenant Crotty today? Well, um, first of all, he was, after I, uh, after um, he was honored here, he's also a member of the Coast Guard Academy's Wall of Gallantry. Uh, he's also being considered as the namesake for a new cutter. However, that's that's yet to be decided right now. Um, so those are ways in which he'll be honored. Um, but he's also a namesake for a variety of bases and installations throughout the service. Um, just to remind people, if they, they don't know about him, to find out more and to um, understand why he was uh, considered such a important figure and hero in uh, Coast Guard history due to all that he did, not just what he earned, but what he represented, because he really was a great representation of the core values of the U.S. Coast Guard. And so um, 
you will always be remembered uh, as one of the great heroes of the uh, U.S. Coast Guard. Yeah, Lieutenant Karate really sort of started the entire concept of purple fighting, uh, you know, where we're a joint war fighting effort. And it's not just your service, my service. It's everybody has to have that uh, interoperability. Uh, nowadays, officers have to go and work with the other services in order to get promoted. He had that covered in his first year, bouncing from uh, every service that there was, fighting wherever he could, a true warrior. We've been talking with Dr. William Thiessen. He's the uh, historian with the United States Coast Guard about Lieutenant James Crotty and the Battle of Corregidor and the really badassery of a Coast Guardsman in the Philippines that has his very own battle streamer. Dr. Thiessen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Coming home well, helping civilians better help veterans. Watch your way. Feel so-